Hello, and welcome to the Save Our Children podcast with Becky and Bridget. Parenting in a red-pilled world can be difficult. Bridget and I are here to discuss the current issues plaguing our children, bring awareness to difficult topics, and give some guidance on how to talk to your kids to help keep them safe. This podcast is in no way giving parenting or counseling advice or telling you how to raise your children. We believe that you know your babies best. Our intention is to have difficult conversations that open dialogue with your kids to prepare them for what could potentially face them beyond our protection. Join us now to help save our children. Hello, welcome to the Save Our Children podcast. We're your hosts, Becky and Bridget. Today, we are so blessed to have on Brandon and Brianna from Red Light Rebellion on today. When I first got into trafficking a few years ago, I was so excited to see that my church, Rock Point, which I've mentioned on here a few times, was also involved in fighting for survivors and preventing further trafficking. The first event I attended at church was led by Red Light Rebellion. And as a mom of a 13 and 11-year-old, I was thrilled that they were out speaking to kids in a way that can be understood by that age group. We met them again at my church's Lighthouse Summit a few months ago and asked them to join us on a podcast. I'm so excited we finally got our schedules aligned to chat. The information these guys have to help us as parents and help our children is invaluable. I would welcome you to listen to this podcast with your kids and have a conversation about what is being said, what your kids may already know, and how they can take this information to their friends. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you just give us some information, who you are, what is Red Light Rebellion, and how did you get started in this ministry? Yeah, so fun to be here uh, with you, Becky and Bridget. Yeah, so uh, I'm Brandon. I'm Brianna. And uh, we work with, or we are Red Light Rebellion. And so we do awareness (laughs) and prevention for sex trafficking in the United States, uh, specifically with students from 7th to 12th grade. And so um, our programs go into schools, churches, any youth-based agency. We also do trainings for uh, parents and safe adults um, in kids' lives. But I first heard about sex trafficking in high school, and I was at a church camp and really felt that God was calling me to do something about it, but didn't know how. And at that time, thought it happened overseas and through things like kidnapping, kind of a lot of the stereotypes. Um, And then six months later, my church said they're going to help launch an aftercare program locally. And that's when I found out about domestic child sex trafficking and uh, the fact that the average age of entry is 13 years old. And so I was like, wow, like that's me and my friend's age group. That's my little brother and his friends. Um, and so I started getting involved and uh, quickly realized that awareness and prevention wasn't happening with students, which made sense at the time. Like the anti-trafficking movement was in its infancy. And so mm-hmm. um, it was really hard for adults to kind of wrap their heads around it, uh, let alone go into schools. But me and my friends, my senior year ended up creating what turned into Red Light Rebellion's first program um, and started going into school back then and have been doing it um, ever since. So yeah, and we can, at whatever point you guys want, we can even go into like details of like the topics we cover in our programs and things like that. Um, that's, yeah, the gist of it. Oh, yeah. you can talk about it. Yeah, program. and um, it was probably, it was a year after we got married that um, I started um, partnering with Brianna and doing Real Rebellion. And uh, there was a couple of the facets of trafficking that I was like already trying to figure out an outlet to do something about that. Um, it was a year after we got married, we were like, oh, actually this works together to where we can actually like do this together. Yeah. And that's when we, um, 
kind of started pioneering our like current program in classrooms with students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really exciting to work together in this. Mm-hmm. That's how many. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Bridget. Sorry. <laughs> We're so excited. We're just talking. Right. <laughs> I was going to say that's amazing too, especially the fact that you can do it together because mm-hmm. there's not much, there's so much information, but there's so many different outlets that it can be overwhelming. And there's yeah. not just one main organization working with the kids. Mm-hmm. And how I was talking to you guys offline, it's nice to know that you guys even being so young, you can relate to the kids, especially on the high school campuses. And you make it fun. And we'll go more into kind of your program and what you guys do at the schools. But you guys make it fun. It's not like you're sitting there like the teacher, like in drilling them, even though it's <laughs> overwhelming, like you guys do the content to where, of course, it's age appropriate conversations. But yeah, I just love your guys's work and what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah, and that's probably one of the most common um, comments that we get from students at the end of the week when uh, we've spent a full week with them, uh, asking them, hey, what did you think about this? Was What was what did you expect? How was it different? And most of the kids are like, I thought this was going to be boring. <laughs> and you walk in and you look all cool and you're like, well, good, you don't look like my mother. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's a big strategy of ours, too, yeah. to look like even younger than we are um, and dress more like the students. And I feel like my whole whole wardrobe is very different than like what a normal like person my age would have. Because I'm like, yeah, I got the ripped jeans and like the baggy shirts, and, <laughs> which is great. It's comfortable. I really love the style right now. Um, right. But yeah, that's definitely something we want. What I was really passionate about, especially for starting Red Light Rebellion as a, a teenager, was I wanted peer-to-peer awareness to happen. I had kind of grown up in the era where like, I don't know if you ever heard of invisible children um, or is when Tom shoes first like launched and invisible children was really the first agency that mobilized young people and utilized technology in order to create um, justice and social change. And so um, I, I kind of looked at those as like, Oh man, like that peer to peer awareness is so powerful. And we really, even though we're not peers to the students, we don't want an age to be a barrier and then being able to receive our um, information and content and message. So. I can guess why, but why did you come up with the name Red Light Rebellion? Yeah, I was sitting in a meeting at um, an aftercare facility and they're talking about an artist who had put together this like display that you could actually like walk through and it was called the Red Light District and it had um, very potent um, visual descriptions of just sexual exploitation. And I was like, because I was trying to think of a name at that time. And I was like, oh, Red Light District, that'd be kind of interesting to like play off of that. Because um, for those that don't know, Red Light Districts are areas in which prostitution is legal and brothels are just rampant. And so, yeah, Red Light Rebellion just, I was like, we need another R to make it like catchy. <laughs> so Rebellion ended up being the word. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I love those God stories where you just like let it out and you're like, okay, I need something. And you just wait for it to come back. Because yes. you're like, yep, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And Brian is also an Enneagram 8. So just the <laughs> idea of rebellion gets <laughs> a part of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you got to take what you got. You're right. Yes. <laughs> if we can go into just some of the signs as far as like grooming, because oftentimes we know in the trafficking world, and I know even on your guys' latest post, we're past the holidays and yes, tis the season for gifts and grooming, 
But transitioning into us knowing that the holidays, especially, as well as Valentine's Day, being in trafficking, those Mm -hmm. are major holidays. And those are huge in the trafficking world and what happens to the victims. So if we can just go into grooming and how gifts are used in that aspect of trafficking. So I think probably like the the premise of understanding grooming in the context of sex trafficking is understanding that trafficking usually doesn't happen through kidnapping. It's usually not how the recruitment method happens. Um, It's relational. And so sex trafficking typically starts in the context of relationship before it does exploitation. And so when traffickers are recruiting someone into trafficking, they are trying to gain their trust, their loyalty, their affection. So that young person is really all in, in, in that relationship. Now, if it's like a family member grooming, something like that, that might look a little different than if it's more of like a pimp control trafficking situation where they might start off as like a stranger, but become like a really close friend or even boyfriend or girlfriend. And so pimps are primarily posing as romantic interests, friends, business professionals, someone with an opportunity. Um, And so that's really where that grooming really stems from. Um, And so the grooming is all about that relational connection. And so gifts can be one of those things. We even see that being used in um, situations of sexual abuse, uh, where the abuser will use gifts as a leverage um, against the the child or the victim. And so um, gifts are one of those ways of, in the beginning, it's kind of creating that bond and that affection. And I want to spoil you if the pimp's pretending to be like a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's like, yeah, I want to spoil you and give you this because you deserve it and you're so special. Um, And then once they are stuck in the life, it's almost used as a way of like incentivizing behavior. Uh, And so if it's, oh, you did good, like we can go on a shopping spree. Um, And it's not like they're going to like Ross and shopping. Um, They're going into Gucci. They're buying Prada. They're buying like the really expensive things. And so it's not just like, oh, you spent like 20 bucks on me. That's so cute. It's, oh, you spent thousands of dollars on me. And then it's used as a, oh, you owe me back um, type of a situation as well. And so some of the girls that I've worked with as a peer mentor um, in an aftercare facility have even talked about how that dynamic, that lifestyle is very hard to leave because you're driving some of the best cars, you're wearing some of the best clothes. Um, And so that to think of going from that to literally poverty because they have no other income. Yeah. And because we, we get questions all the time, like in the classrooms, like you can work at McDonald's, get a job anywhere. And it's like, that is true. But when you go from making hundreds and thousands of dollars in a night or a month, tens of thousands of dollars to, even though it's not the victims, even though the pimp controls all of it, if the pimp is, or the trafficker is one where that young person can benefit from some of those monetary gains, um, that's a hard lifestyle to just switch because you go from luxury to poverty like that. Um, so that's, that's a huge controlling mechanism as well as a grooming technique. I think too, going off of that, it's, that's important to say, especially when we live in such a materialistic world, that is one thing that you will see even survivors who are, who have gotten out, but then say if there was addiction or them just trying to go back to healing and function through the world and dealing with that trauma, you will see some of them go back to that. Because the lifestyle is something you can't just turn off. And then you they have like the flashbacks. You still have that trauma and everything that they're dealing with. Or you still have survivors who've gotten out who still now owe the government 
because they've taken some of these charges. And so we'll go deeper into that. But I know that we've talked to survivors who still owe the government monthly fees and are paying for those charges and felonies that they've taken on for the traffickers and their handlers. And I know we're throwing a lot of terminology at you guys. Mm -hmm. So it can be a lot, but we will also make sure to add references to their website, which will break down clearly all of the words we're using because there is a lot of terminology when it comes to sex exploitation, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and knowing the difference of all of it. Yeah. Well, and, and as adults, it's very easy for us to say, well, you just don't need that or you just don't, but you have to look back. And I know a lot of people are like, I wouldn't have done that at 14 or I wouldn't. Have yeah, you would have. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. They're the same 13, 14, 15 year old kids that we were. We they just have technology. They have easier ways of getting the things that are dangerous to them. And they want acceptance and they want to have the cool things that their friends have or they want to have the things their friends don't have so that they're cool. And we're talking on another podcast today that we have to remind kids that it's okay to just be okay. It's okay to be a dorky 13-year-old kid that doesn't know what they want to do because <laughs> every kid is that way. Yeah, yeah. And so to be to be comfortable in who you are and who God made you to be is a perfectly fine place to be. But right now, especially with social media and especially with where we're at, everybody feels like they need a niche. I I am a this. I am a that. And it's like, no, 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 you don't need to know. I know my my 13-year-old, he's like, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? You're 13. It doesn't matter what you like. Maybe you'll figure I, it out in 15 years. Yeah, right? <laughs> Maybe someday when you're 41, you'll figure it out. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, yes, I understand that you're leaving the house in five years or four years. You will learn so much in that four-year span. And what you're going to do for your life may not even exist today as a thing. And so... Us as parents have to be very aware. I've had to say numerous times over the last few weeks and months, what you're going through is normal. This thing is normal. You're feeling this way and it's normal. Because if we don't normalize this odd feeling, they're going to go find it somewhere. And someone's going to tell them, you're beautiful. You're so much fun to hang out. I can be your best friend. Look at your parents don't like you, but I do. And all that stuff starts to come around. No, totally. That's brilliant, Becky, because um, we know that at the core of kind of even the materialistic uh, gift giving part of the manipulation uh, and really all of the grooming process comes down to this idea of um, a young person getting their needs met and finding a place where they belong. Yep. And that's where we see pimps uh, are exploiting young people's vulnerability in that. And so that um, space of needing to be known uh, is so, so ridiculously like biologically wired in us as human beings that at 13 and 14, uh, like a lot is changing. We want to be known with our families and depending on uh, what our family dynamic uh, based on what that upbringing, what our attachment has been like at that point can determine a lot of our vulnerabilities. And so um, I think some people looking back when they're a kid, they're like, oh, I never would have done something like that. But um, there's probably other vulnerabilities that they had that someone could have right. taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see, um, again, that just desire to be known uh, and have a space. And what I loved about what you said, too, is just the 
affirming that what they're going through is normal. Um, and the way you talked about it sounded like more of an identity statement because kids are looking for their, their identity and who they are. Uh, and the only place um, we find our identity is when it's reflected back to us. And so for a parent to say, hey, this is who you are, this is what you are, has massive implications for their identity and how they see themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's even, important. I'm sorry, go ahead. Even from like a faith perspective, like that, like, like we know who we are because of who God says we are and like yep. that, like reflecting back on us. And so just all like, if we're getting that from crisis parents and then being able to give that to our kids, um, that's, that's really powerful and securing for a kid and being able to overcome some of these vulnerabilities to exploitation and predators. Mm -hmm. Like you said, if that, um, identity is being met and reflected in a positive way where they feel safe and like they have belonging, mm -hmm. they're not going to need belonging with, they're not going to go looking for it somewhere else. Yes. Someone else isn't going to be able to hijack their belonging. Yes. And, and that's what's so dangerous because again, as parents, we can't be with them a hundred percent. We can't, we, the world comes in, whether the world's at school or the world's with friends or the world's online. And again, we could, and that's why Bridget and I even started this podcast is okay. So how do I turn off all elect all electronics and bubble wrap them and keep them in the house because <laughs> the world's going to get them? But we can certainly live that way until they turn 18. And then what happens? Or until they leave your house? Because my children are leaving. I tell you what I'm kidding. What's <laughs> 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 up, kids? No, but this, this idea that they need to be able to enter the world with the knowledge to be able to handle the world. And that's where we really, and that's where you guys come in. And it's so wonderful that you have your programs and you get to go in because not all parents, well, let's be honest, most parents don't think like I think and aren't doing these things because they're busy. They don't intentionally do it. It just is what they know. It is what they, they do. And, and so for you guys to come in and say, all right, I, here's what you need to know. And now you need to look out for your peers mm -hmm. is huge. Yeah, going off of vulnerability and even your guys' program and just even recruitment online, technology is huge, especially with this generation. So if we can go into the, based on what you guys have seen in your program and dealing with the children and even teenagers um, through, um, globe, I know you work with stuff globally, even like the college level and even parenting. What when it comes to the online victim recruitment aspect, are you guys seeing is the mo like the trend as well as the most, I guess I could say, informational advice for a parent that sh they should like talk with their kids about when it comes to online safety and social media, as we've seen recruitment through apps like Snapchat, TikTok, and the sex exploitation on all social media platforms. Yeah, we well, we know that social media is the number one tool that traffickers are using to recruit. Um, and it can feel really like complicated and overwhelming, especially if as like adults that didn't grow up with technology, accessing that or understanding how it works. But basically any app, any social media platform or media platform in general that has the ability to have a chat feature, there are going to be predators on that platform that are targeting kids. Um, so we've even heard of recruitment happening on like words with friends because it has a chat feature. Um, 
I know, so sad. <laughs> you think it's safe, and then it's just like, oh. You're even getting the smart kids. Come on. I know, right? <laughs> totally. Um, but it's important to know some features, like Snapchat has it, where it's like you can give access to people to see your location wherever you are, as long as Snapchat is like on your phone or like open on your phone. So knowing that like there's certain apps that have like additional features that make things dangerous is really important. Um, but I think what we've heard from the parents that we've worked with that are also experts in um, anti-trafficking is they really recommend having open and honest conversations with kids starting at a very young age. Um, So because of technology, kids are being exposed to exploitive media uh, from a very, very young age, like average age of exposure to porn is between eight and 11. Um, And so experts are now saying we need to start talking to our kids about pornography starting at like five years old which is so young and parents freak out and they're like, Oh my gosh, my kid's not ready for stuff like that. (laughs) They're like, there are age appropriate ways to do it. (laughs) And which we have some resources we can reference in a second um, for stuff like that. But it's starting really, really young. As soon as a kid has access to any type of device, even if you're just giving it to them to watch a video, to keep them quiet while you're doing something else. um, It's important to have those conversations young. It's good pictures, bad pictures. Um, It's really simple like that. Um, But as they get older, obviously talking about predators and things like that. I remember when I was a kid, Neopets was like the thing. And so me and my friend are on Neopets. And I remember a guy started chatting with me and he was a predator. And it was one of those things where because I had an open communication with my mom about just whatever was going on in my day, I brought it up. It didn't strike me as weird at that point. The conversation didn't strike me as weird as a kid, but I just brought it up and my mom's like, what? And so, <laughs> um, so she was able to investigate, but it, that starts really little, right? And so then progressing. I know some parents that we know of do um, like media contracts with their kids. And so as soon as a kid gets like a phone or their own computer, whether even if the motivation is for school or because they have extracurricular activities, as soon as they have access to that, then they kind of draw up a contract that's like, hey, these are the boundaries in which we use technology. And then with the child, they sit down as a family and are like, if these are the boundaries, we agree on what's appropriate. If these boundaries are violated, if you break the rules, what are the consequences? And then the child actually contributes to what those consequences are. And then they all like sign it. And so then everyone is like in agreement. This is what it is. So kids, you know, starts like giving pushback. It's like, hey, so those are some of the ways that we've heard parents kind of engage that piece. Yeah, there's also, um, there's a few apps that we know uh, that have been helpful for parents too. One's called Bark. Uh, that has I really good. My Bark, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that other one from the dude that's from here? Cyberdrive. Cyberdrive. Yeah. Cyberdrive. Cyberdrive. So it's really great. And then educate empower kids is a resource that yeah. helps walks walk parents through different tough conversations with their kids and they have different a lot of it centered around like exploitive media like pornography um but they also have other books running technology and things like that but they break it down according to the age and how to have conversations with I kids like that age which yeah. is really really nice i've gone their resources for like my own family members mm-hmm. with kids so they're great educate empower kids we we just did uh, i think i brought up earlier with protect young eyes and oh, yeah. and chris was had a video the other day in my older son is homeschooled. So he sits in the office with me over here during the day. And so I'm watching the video and it's all related to boys and how, if, if a girl comes on and says like, Hey, like, I'm going to show you whatever, like, it's probably not a girl. Like, let's be honest, <laughs> probably not. And 
said like, um, it was a great video because I said, and at no point ever should you send dick pics to somebody else. And so I turned my, my chair over and I was like, did you hear that? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I heard. He started, we, I don't even remember, it must have been, I don't know if it was with him or with someone else. And we know it was with Yako Boyens. He came on at the beginning of the school year, two days before my kids started school. And he was talking about porn and how dangerous it is and blah, blah, blah. Have a conversation with my boys. First day of school, my eighth grader goes to school. And one of the friends or one of the kids in his class says, have you seen porn? Mm -hmm. And because two days earlier, I had had the conversation of what it was and why it's not appropriate Mm -hmm. to watch. He was like, no. And the kid walked away. And I was like, do you know what could have happened had I not had that conversation, you would have been like, what is this? Type it in your phone. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Going off of that and transitioning into the porn conversation. Yeah. Happy yeah. to help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we can touch on, like, what would you say to parents who say, well, I don't want to ruin my kids' innocence or they're too young to talk about porn? What are... Can we talk about what you would say to them and then the harmful things porn can lead to and really how that is really an important piece of a conversation? Yeah, no, I would say first off that desire to protect your kids' innocence is super valuable and um, to follow your gut on that and that, um, yeah, that like is set should be such a priority and is so much more difficult now than ever before in history because once you once a kid like has a device literally the extent of the world is in the palm of their hand uh that sounds like something from a movie but that's the reality Uh, and uh and so with that we would say that what we've learned and seen is that um there's a difference between protecting the innocence of a kid and sheltering them and there is kind of, there can be a fine line, but from what we've seen has worked really well um, with parents that we've worked with is uh, not sheltering them from the dangers of the world, from um, what's in the world uh, and get, having those informational conversations uh, so that they have a heads up of what they're walking into. And so like with drug awareness, um, you know, you don't have to do drugs to know that drugs are harmful. It's like, you know, right. like or here's, to explain the harms of drugs. Yeah, it's like, hey, here's the effects of what happens if someone on drugs. Like, um, and you can like talk through that in ways that are age appropriate um, and not like graphic mm-hmm. at all. And so it's the same thing with pornography. And I totally get the reaction of like, oh my gosh, I don't want to like ruin their innocence around the conversation of sex because it's like, wait, how do you talk about porn without it being graphic? Yeah. Um, and totally. So that's a very like legit just. Um, thought and reaction to having that. And um, so with that, you can talk to your kids about healthy sexuality, about pornography in ways that are appropriate, that give them the information that they need to be a healthy person and make the choices that they want to um, and not like have their innocence taken away. And I think too, like asking kids questions, answering kids questions yeah. is really important. So I think one rule that my mom kind of abided by was she answered the question according to my extent, the extent of my curiosity. Mm-hmm. So when I was really little, I was asking about sex and she's like, oh, it's special like lovins. We called it lovins, like cuddles and stuff. So special lovins between moms and dads. And I was like, 
cool. And then my brother, yeah, do the end. Then my brother, who's two years younger than me, when he was in second grade, he's like, no, but how do you do it? And my mom's like, are you sure you want to know? And he's like, yes. And so (laughs) then she told us all the mechanics of sex. And so at a very young age, my brother was ready for that information. But I think it also depends on, at that time, when I was in fourth grade, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't even have a laptop or computer in our home. Um, and so, and if, if we did, it took forever for the internet to get up. <laughs> it would have so, taken me a bit easier to explain it. Right, yeah. So <laughs> it takes, I think one reality that parents nowadays have to just accept is because technology is so rampant and prevalent and allows such easy access to dangerous things, parenting has to change. And those conversations, not only do they have to change, but they have to happen earlier. And so I would say it would be appropriate to tell a child, start having conversations about sex and their bodies and good touch, bad touch, good pictures, bad pictures, all that kind of stuff from a very young age. And I don't think it would be inappropriate to say that a five-year-old should know on some level what sex is. Mm -hmm. I think one, one thing, one way to to think of this as well. We had one parent that was concerned about her program at like a church camp. And she's like, yeah, I had like a sixth grade girl and she didn't even know what like molestation was. And so I had to explain that to her. She was like very distraught that she had to explain that to this, to the student, not because it wasn't her child, but because of the age. And I was like, here's my concern is she's in sixth grade. So she's 11, 12 years old. She may have been molested before. But because she doesn't know what sex is, because she doesn't know what molestation is, she does not have the language in which to disclose that experience. And so one of, I think, maybe a different perspective or a reframing of how do we protect our kids and kind of being concerned about talking about some of this stuff is we are actually protecting their innocence and keeping them innocent by giving them language in order to vocalize properly their experiences whether positive or negative experiences yeah and like with that too just being at schools and the way students interact with each other like if you don't talk to your kid about porn and sex someone is going to and it's gonna just like you described in your story like uh like literally kids talk about porn and sex all the time at schools and like um yeah it's just so so like brianna said protecting their innocence is actually having the conversation. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things we've talked about on here before is, is this stuff happens, but if you call it by the wrong name, like we had uh, Torby on and she was telling a story about how a little girl said, uh, went up to her teacher and said, my uncle licked my cookie. Yeah. And the teacher's like, well, that's gross, but I mean, whatever. I mean, sorry, but fine. But now imagine that little girl who's vulnerable telling her teacher, like, this isn't right. It doesn't feel good. I don't know what's going on. And the teacher says, it's okay. Because she wasn't given the proper tools to say, my uncle touched me inappropriately. My uncle touched me here, whatever it is. And so, yes, you do not. And so many parents want to want to have this assumption that the conversation you'd have with your 18 year old son is the same conversation you'd have with your five-year-old son. And to your point of you, you go until their curiosity is gone. If they start giggling, yep, you've met it. You're done. You've already gone too far because they, they're uncomfortable. But if they ask you, be honest with them. And it's, it's not, okay, boys have penises girls have vaginas and here we are and this is how it works we do not have to talk about pleasure 
We do not have to talk about what happens in a bedroom. We know that these two things happen and that's how it works. And then it's done because you don't have to be like, ha son, guess what happens when you please a woman? What? What? No. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah that'd be very, very different. Very <laughs> different. And I don't know that I ever want that conversation with my wife. <laughs> yeah, any age. That's right. probably not <laughs> the most comfortable. Yeah. Um, and with that too, I think one thing that my mom did talk about help with um with my brother and I that was really interesting is when she talked about good touch and bad touch um she went through all of our family members to say does grandpa touch you here does your uncle touch you here does your aunt touch you here um because she had friends in high school that were sexually abused by relatives and family members and so she wanted us to know that like only under these specific circumstances is this okay um and and how to speak up if those things happen and she also was interesting as she taught us she's like your body god created your body to feel a certain way when touched a certain way and ideally that for like christians happens in the context of marriage between mommies and daddies she's like but if someone touches you this way that they're not supposed to she's like your body might feel good now that doesn't mean that that is good and that doesn't make you bad and that was just really interesting to me that gives me chills because that's awesome yeah. And so it took shame away in a really powerful way. Um, and so I think as parents, we really just have to dive into these issues and research them, understand um, the experience of it um, for kids that might go through something like that and the resources out there. Because especially with pornography, it's not a question of if your kid is going to see porn, it is a question of when they will see porn. And I can still picture the first image, the pop-up on the internet that came up that was pornographic. Um, and I can still picture that in my head. And I didn't look for that. That came to me. And so, and for most kids, that's that's what it is. Um, but yeah, we can also transition. I don't know if you guys have any more comments or questions on that, but we can transition to like the harmful effects of porn too. I know you had- Yeah, that would be great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we know that um, porn harms in like three major ways uh, that it actually creates a chemical addiction uh, to the dopamine release in the brain, that it kills love and relationships, doesn't spice anything up. Uh, we've learned through actual stories of um, partners that are, even if both partners are okay with each other viewing porn, uh, that they're actually, is it 300 times more likely to cheat on each other mm-hmm. um, and have infidelity ah. within the relationship? And then also that uh, ultimately, pornography does fuel the demand for sex trafficking. We know that victims are trafficked through pornography and that many buyers are acting out of their addiction to pornography, um, wanting to recreate things that they've seen from porn. Um, And so, yeah, it just creates uh, on to our brains, to our relationships, and then societally how sex trafficking gets wrapped up in that. We know that porn is just very damaging um, on every level. (laughs) Uh, We know that um, a couple of researchers in this topic have been studying the effects of porn and media for more than 30 years. Uh, And they've actually found, uh, after all their rigorous research and demonstrations and studies, they've actually found zero biological benefits uh, from pornography, that there's literally nothing that actually benefits humans from porn. They're They're finding more kids have erectile dysfunction at younger ages because of it too. Yeah. yeah, over 30% of, uh, what was it, 15 to 25-year-olds? Yeah. Um, Male are struggling with erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so it's actually inhibiting kids 
ability to even have sex, which is really crazy. And they actually, um, I think this is anecdotal. I don't know if this is like an actual study, but um, Gabe Dean, he is um, a great resource in on the harmful effects of pornography. And he has a story of overcoming uh, pornography um, struggle and addiction and overcoming porn induced erectile dysfunction. And he's very open about his story, which is why <laughs> I can say that. Um, yes. Yeah. But he was saying in his experience, as he was kind of trying to figure out like his own like struggle with that and reaching out to different communities, adult men that were developing porn-induced erectile dysfunction actually had an easier time of overcoming it because they had ha- they had been exposed to pornography um, after they had had real life sexual encounters. Um, whereas our generation that grew up with the technology and porn is our first sexual encounter and experience, where our generation of males is actually having a harder time in overcoming erectile dysfunction because our body is just programmed to the porn and doesn't have any programming to what like a real sexual relationship actually looks like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so one of the resources we love in talking about this is, I'm sure you guys know Fight the New Drug. They're really great. Mm-hmm. Um, they even have a section on their website of like how to walk you through a conversation with your kid. Um, Tracking Hub is the campaign that we I was, love. I was wondering what, what your shirt was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, I was ask you. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> Um, and so what they're doing and just holding uh, Pornhub and other um, porn websites accountable for hosting and facilitating sex trafficking is great. And just following those campaigns, I think a lot of people can start to learn on the intersection between pornography um, and sex trafficking because the viewer doesn't know if the person they're watching is being sex trafficked or not. Right. And we also know about 39% of sex buyers say that they are at, going to prostitution to act out what they're seeing in pornography. And so we see there's like a direct correlation between a sex addiction involving pornography and for some of those people going out and physically acting out with prostitutes because and with that the or actually did you guys have a question or any comment no i was just gonna say and and the the more it takes to get you aroused usually the younger the person becomes and so now like oh it was good when it was this age oh i'm gonna watch the ones that say barely teen or whatever ridiculous stuff they have and now that's how you start going down that that road and you don't know that the person on like you said on the screen that says they're 18 is really not 14 you have no idea what they look like or what they're doing and so yeah you're directly contributing to the problem yeah the most popular searched term on porn websites is teen so we know that there's a unfortunately a high demand in that category yeah and just going off of all of that is I just want to point out too, as people are watching porn, they get into the harder types of porn. And so it starts to become more rough for that victim. And usually the people in majority of the girls and even males in porn, they are literally drugged, right? They're not doing it. They're, they're not submitting to it. And majority of the time, someone you are watching on Pornhub is underage. So I often try to talk or tie that conversation back to just imagine that is your daughter or your son and how you would feel even from a parent standpoint if you were in that situation and you saw a video or if it was your child. And just knowing that the abuse that's going on and there's, as you get deeper into trafficking, then you even have it takes them down different paths of addiction and satanic ritual abuse. And it just gets deeper into 
levels of trafficking and further into the sex exploitation. Um, but even just going off of your guys's program and if we can go more in depth as far as if I was a principal at school or a parent who said, I want to have you guys come and teach this to my school, whether it be the parents or the students, what would, I know you have different programs. So what are some of those programs that you offer and what you're doing within your program? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So we, before that too, I want to um, just reference one resource that I think it can be really powerful for parents surrounding mm-hmm. the pornography conversation. I don't know if you guys have heard of um, culture, culture reform. Reframed. Culture reframed. Yeah. Um, researcher Gail Dines, um, it's her program. And yeah. I think it's a free course they have for preteen parents and teen parents surrounding the topic. So that could be like a really great resource. Yeah. Because she, and it's, in, and actually this was one side note too on that. Um, the, just the, business model and business plan of the pornography industry is extremely solid. Like mm-hmm. their like business plan of introducing their product to children uh, around the age of eight to get them addicted. So by the time the turn 18 and have a credit card, they have a lifetime customer. Mm-hmm. And so just the business model that they have with that, Gildines talks about in a way that's very uh, interesting and um, easy to understand. And so she has a cool um, TED talk too, which yeah. is really oh. neat. But yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll have to look that up. Well, and, and the 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 comment about that, and then we'll really get into your program. <laughs> yeah. um, is think about how many girls, and I'm not saying only boys watch porn, but the majority of the viewers are male. How many girl, teenage girls go into their first sexual encounter and ex, and the boys expect that they are now porn stars when it could have been a loving situation? Again. In the Christian world, we wait for marriage, but we know that's not happening. So even still, the idea of they're showing each other each other's bodies before they even go on a date. They're going there. They're talking about that stuff and what they're going to do before they even get into a relationship. And now we have additional traumas brought on. The boy has trauma from watching what he watched, but now he thinks that's what a loving relationship looks like. And now we've traumatized this girl. And so it's not just, oh, it's easy. It's just like looking at a Playboy. Well, that what the Playboy used to be something that an 18-year-old would look at, and that was it. Now it's video. Now it's shoot, moving. Now there's all these things to it that we're looking at. Again, you said eight is the age that this is that people are. That's the average age. Mm-hmm. That's not the age. That means that five-year-olds are getting this stuff, too. And then having to deal with it. And so you're absolutely right. It's, it's, and it's purposely there that you go here, just watch YouTube and guess what the next video comes up. It's some ad for something. Yeah. Totally. Really quick going off of that comment, just because yeah. <laughs> kind of flowed off of that one. Um, mm-hmm. But I often reference it on our other podcasts as well. Like the previous episodes is when we talk about grooming and then going off of even mm-hmm. just getting that content and going as think of it as when a kid turns 18. So right now kids have cell phones and technology at such a young age, TikTok. Oh, it's cute. It's fun. It's trendy. You're just doing dances. You see half of the content on there. These girls are twerking and shaking their butts and, Oh, it's cute. It's trendy because society and your favorite influencers are doing it. But what they don't tell you is these influencers are getting paid to do this. They have contracts and they're getting paid for this content. But now you have your 
two-year-old, even your two-year-old daughter knows how to use TikTok because they're dancing with mom and dad thinking, oh, it's cute to be shaking your butt and doing all this stuff on TikTok and you're just dancing in family time, however you want to do it. But don't, you have to look at it from even like the line of work that we're doing is I talk about being that age, the device is in the kid's hand. Now there's that grooming. Now it's normalized. You just desensitize your child to thinking that's normal and that's okay. So now by time you're 18, your kids, even 16, I'm going to say, because you see the playboy being a trend in all the high schools and that being a thing. So yeah, wearing like the playboy bunny and all that. So yeah, playboy clothing. <laughs> so even just seeing that my kids staying home. <laughs> and then you see OnlyFans and that being cool or that movie Cuties. Just mm-hmm. think about how many little kids had to audition to even get into that. So now you have this technology, you have this device, TikTok, family dancing. By the time they're 18, that kid's gonna want an OnlyFans because now they can do it they can make this content shake their butt do whatever and now it's normal because society made it normal so now you're gonna go down and you're taking them down that road of by the time they're 18 prostitution may be next you you've already started them with the sex exploitation so now by time 16 17 legally 18 you see the you see the um prostitution and then that could lead to sex trafficking and further down. So no different than that. Look at that train track, no different than you would porn. You start at soft porn and then you get harder into it. And now you just, pretty soon they're going to run off the road and fall at the end of the train track and you crash. <laughs> at some point, you're going to do yeah. something. So yeah. just looking yeah. at it, that reference as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And that's so similar to what Gil Dines talks about in um, – and how I, it's a really high percentage of people in pornography, um, especially females, have experienced sexual abuse from their past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gil Dines argues that uh, moving forward, that won't be the trend anymore because society, culture, pornography is grooming uh, girls to think that prostitution is okay and boys to think that sex buying is okay. Mm-hmm. And so, because um, we know like the, it's a very old stab is that, of men and 30% of women are addicted to porn. And so um, we know it is a major girl issue as well, too, and that it is, again, forming uh, our identities and sexuality uh, in a way that uh, is very dehumanizing. Yeah, and it's not that, like, every kid that's, like, into porn or has those expectations is going to be desensitized into sex trafficking or prostitution or, like, these extremes, but it that that's, like, it's a pathway. Um, and it's a, it makes it easier for those situations to happen. It makes it easier for the trafficker and the pimp to groom and do their job. Um, society, like you're saying, Bridget, is doing that almost for that. It's like kind of laying the foundation yeah. for them to make it so much easier. Um, and I think too, like a note to even make is that when a kid as young as eight years old, I would even say 11, depending on what they're being exposed to, or even a little older, depending on what they're being exposed to. Um, When a young child is being exposed to pornography, what happens in their brain is the same impact as if they're being sexually abused. And so what we have is a generation of kids that is almost like raised on pornography from such a young age because of the exposure, but the brain doesn't realize when we're watching something, it doesn't realize that that is not happening to us. So when we watch horror films and like something jumps out of us, yeah. you, know, you really yeah. like get shocked. 
because we have that adrenaline coursing through our body as if it's physically happening. That same thing is happening in pornography. And so when a kid that is too young to be having sexual experiences is, is engaging that kind of content, that psychologically is what's happening. And so now we have almost like this generation that's addicted to their own sexual abuse, which is a really interesting wow, um, yeah. dynamic to think about. Um, but yeah, something even as parents, as we think about how to have these hard conversations with our kids and our nervousness about bringing it up from such a young age, that can be a way of reframing the conversation as well. Um, All right. So let's actually talk about your program. Yes, yes. <laughs> because we finally got there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We might come back. We'll see. But let's yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we talk about the basics of what sex trafficking is, what it looks like, how to stay safe. That's how we start every single presentation when we're with a group of people, uh, whether virtually like this or um, in person. And so in the classroom, we come in, we, Brandon's an audio engineer. And so he hooked us up with this great, like, sound system yeah it's, well. i've used it with groups of like 300 people before so if we actually bring in like a separate sub woofer <laughs> yeah. like just be as extra as we possibly can <laughs> and it actually like it's definitely overkill because it's a classroom of like 35 kids at the most <laughs> they like it um, they like that they do yeah. yeah it really like we've been very intentional with our program of making every kind of like part of the experience just something different than what you would expect something different than when you're walking into your uh, freshman health class or like uh, just normal classroom with a teacher trying to create something that's engaging and attention grabbing and so um, yeah it's a lot of fun we create a lot of hype around it and um, so yeah we always start about um, talking about what sex trafficking is, what it looks like, how to stay safe. Um, and then what we realized in working with survivors as well as interacting with so many students is that it wasn't just their age that was making them vulnerable to sex trafficking. There are other almost like underlying vulnerabilities and even like root causes that we felt we could address on the student side. Obviously, we need like parents and safe adults engaged in that conversation and those processes. Students need that ultimately to stay safe. Um, but we felt that there were ways to engage a conversation with kids that could be really powerful. And so uh, we also talk about uh, mental health and shame resiliency with students as well. Uh, because relational recruitment is so common, trackers are getting to know these kids' stories. They're trying to understand who they are, what's happened in their lives, how those things impact them. And then they're trying to fix or meet unmet needs or resolve traumas or make promises that they can make it better um, and kind of make up for what happened. And so a lot of times things happen in our lives, but we are unaware of the extent in which they impact us. And so we believe having the self-awareness of not just what has happened in our lives, but how those things impact us, as well as how to reach out and identify safe support people in our lives is going to help kids stay safe. And so we did that presentation with kids. We also have a version of that um, for adults as well. Um, and so our programs, we'll go into more of the topics in a sec, but just kind of like a side note, our programs um, start with the basics. And then the longer we're with a group of students, the more that we can dive into. And so we've structured our programs around like the 50 to 60 minute class period. And so we can be in the same classroom with uh, teachers classes from one day, which covers just the basics of what sex trafficking is, what it looks like as they say, all the way up to five days. And so the longer we're with them, the more we go into these topics. Yeah. And so Brianna described our first day and our second day um, with students. The third day, we talked about healthy relationships romantically, because we know that so many victims there, um, uh, there's been a romantic kind of element of uh, pimp posing as a boyfriend, um, getting taken advantage of. And so we talked about what real love does look like. So many students, when we ask them what love looks like, they're like, oh, it's not eating your partner or like domestic violence situations or like cheating oh, on them. And no, like, okay. like, 
Yeah, that's a good start. But like, what does it look like? And so we talk about what healthy relationships do look like. What should be present is um, that way they can tell the real from the fake. And then um, from there, we talk about exploiting media with um, pornography. Um, uh, everything that we just talked about before, we dive into those kind of brain heart world elements of pornography. Um, and then if we're in a classroom for a full week, we spend the last day doing um, an engaging kind of like recap and then a call to action where we get students uh, plugged into our social media and the movement and give them a chance to um, use their voice uh, in the classroom when we're with them. So yeah, so we give them an opportunity to like follow us on social. We have them get their phones out. We've got, and this is for every presentation we do. We've got like a rebel pledge that they can sign. I was say, don't you sign, they, don't they sign yeah. the pledge? Yeah. yeah. And then we bring some of like our cardboard like signs that are in like our videos and stuff and they can take pictures and post and tag us and um, if they give us permission, we can repost it for them. And so it's a fun fun environment because it really leverages that peer-to-peer awareness. Um, and, and it's been cool. A lot of, some kids are really shy in person with us and then they message us on social afterwards. Oh, to story. Some students come up to us and just like want to give us a hug. Some kids um, are just very open with us. And so from those um, presentations that we've been able to interact with a lot of students and hear yeah. just a lot of really powerful stories of the impact that so many, we, we occasionally will get disclosures of sex trafficking, um, but other kids that haven't experienced anything like sex trafficking are still coming up to us and talking about how they're like, hey, like I felt alone. I felt like this thing that happened in my past or this mistake that I made like defined me. Um, and because of you guys, I know that what I do doesn't define me. Um, and so it's been really powerful to see just the impact that talking about such a sensitive issue in um, the way that we do is really creating um, just widespread impacts on how these kids view themselves and view other people. We're even seeing the impacts and how it prevents sex trafficking too. And so we actually, a couple of years ago, um, got a message from a student saying she'd been talking with a guy on Snapchat. And as soon as she turned 18, he started asking her for nudes, said that he would send her money through Snapchat in exchange for every image. And it was the the money exchange that really kind of caught her off guard. She was just like, that kind of sounds sketch. That kind of sounds like what talks about. Yeah. And so she was actually able to take out the red flag card that we had given her in her freshman health class. She had kept it in her wallet for three years, was able to take it out, realized the guy from nearly every one of those warning signs, blocked him out of her life, and then messaged us and said, thank you so much for coming to my school and possibly saving my life. And so... That was, yeah, that was like the first story that we ever got where we're like, oh my gosh, it's working. Since <laughs> um, then, we've gotten just a ton of stories similar to that, especially with yeah. those red flag cards, which you can find that in a highlight on our Instagram um, and see like a digital version and sh- screenshot and share that. Um, I know, look for your audience. <laughs> right. yeah. Oh, yeah, you may have because you saw some. I, I have stickers and I have a pin, but I don't know why I have a card. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's been cool to see the impact um, that students yeah. students just share with us their stories, which is really great. We've been able to get them connected to resources. We let them know like we're not the resource. We can help connect you to <laughs> Well, and I think that's important too, the impact, especially if they feel that their parents can't relate or they don't feel that they can go to them to have that conversation you now have put your face on their campus and you've also made it comfortable to along their peers to know that they all went through the same class. So now it can kind of be normalized and okay to talk about it where they might not feel so awkward or no, we shouldn't stand for this. And so just even knowing like 
this is the facts, here's the stats. And what's, it's not everyone's house normal isn't normal and the same in every household. And so just knowing like even from you guys speaking out with stats and like doing it in a way that they can relate to, it makes that conversation more comfortable. But then also as more comes to light about human trafficking on social media and in the media, slightly it's coming out. And so now they've been through your class and now it might give some of those kids an urge to want to go step out and not only defend a friend that they may know or a family member or even their community. So now it's also helped them possibly find their voice and be like, no, I want to stand for this. It's okay. It's cool. They made it cool. And now it's not such a taboo topic. And now it's okay. Cause you guys have at least soften the blow to have that comfortable conversation in a setting to where they might not have originally thought it was okay. Yeah. And to kind of, there's a a story that we got from a student um, and some of our last days of presenting uh, last semester that I think really illustrates the the point that you're making there. She had, um, she pulled me aside um, at one point and was like, Hey, I want to talk to you about something, but I don't want any adults to know. And I was like, well, I am an adult and I'm going to tell other adults. I know I'm wearing a sweatshirt. Yeah, yeah. but it was it was interesting because she she's like yeah she's like my friend was in um, got your presentation last week we were at the same school we did um, two full weeks with them going between different teachers classes she's like I, she she's like she got our, your presentation last week and after the healthy relationships day she messaged me it's like hey that kind of sounds like the guy that you've been talking to and the student's reaction to that being told that was just like ah. I'm not sure. And then she got our presentation, saw that same one and was just like, oh my gosh, this is him. And so she tried to end it on her own and he responded very poorly. And so she got scared and that's when she reached out. But she was just terrified of of reaching out to her mom about it. And I was like, you, we really need to talk to your mom. And she, there's so many different dynamics going on in her home and so much anxiety about it. And I was like, Hey, like your mom sounds like a really awesome person. And it sounds like she really cares about you. She would want to know this. I know she's got a lot going on, but you are her priority. You're her daughter. And so the next day she came to me, she's like, Hey, it's my mom. And she responded great. And we've got like a plan in place and all these things. As it was that peer to peer awareness, it was that one peer saying, Hey, I see this and I'm going to do something about it is the other one receiving that. And then being coached on how to reach out to the safe adult in their life that they could go to to actually get them the help that they truly needed. So it was a really great way to show all the different dynamics because we were going to these classrooms and we're, we're trying to share the same things that the parents are saying at home um, and do it in a way that hopefully the kids will be able to receive um, where they feel it's more on their terms rather than like the parents' <laughs> term. It just reinforce what parents are saying. Because yeah. um, sometimes I know as a teenager, even as an adult, I need to hear things multiple times. And not from your mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, oh, sorry. I had a question about that. Are you finding that in the few in the years that you've done this, are you finding that more kids have heard this from their parents, and or are you seeing that you're still coming in and they're totally blindsided by the fact like no one's ever told me this? No, most of them they've all heard of sex trafficking. Yeah. So okay. the extent of those conversations kind of depends. Um, and we actually find that kids that have um, a more solid um, and involved like faith-based system tend to have had these conversations more. 
Um, which is interesting because some schools are like, oh, I don't know. We have like a really conservative parent population. They might get mad. Um, and it's yeah, actually interesting because those parents that are typically having more of the conversations than, um, than others. And so it's been an interesting dynamic. So most of them, I think because parents think this, um, and so if they're talking to their kids about this subject, then the kids are going to think that most kids think, oh, it's through kidnapping and it happens across state lines or overseas only. Um, and so then when we bring in the relational recruitment, that's where they tend to be like, oh, I, I didn't know that part of it. So. Right. And even just as a parent, say if, because most parents' reaction is automatically freak out and like some kids like don't know what to do when the parents do that and the parents, they're just like awkward all together. <laughs> So if I say if a child, your a child was to come and tell a parent about whether it was grooming or if they potentially met up with a stranger, I'm going to use Snapchat, for example, mm-hmm. just because I know amongst teenagers in my area, I have found out as I've talked to some of them that they have access through the little geo map. They meet these random people, whether it's a high schooler or a random person on this geo map who ends up being a dealer, whether it's with vape pens or for weed, or they even have access to heroin. And there's kids in our area doing heroin at age 10 years old. So knowing that, and then they get caught eventually that the parents are like, where are you at? Or of course the skin changes, different behavior, all of that changes. So then now the kid's in that rebellious stage, but then the parents, they go to the parents to have this conversation and the parents freak out. What would be your advice to a parent making that initial conversation more comfortable and open to just the initial freak out? Just because we know that's a natural reaction, but like if if I'm a parent and I was in that situation, what would be some advice? Yeah, I think first would be, just to straight reverse roles and put yourself in their shoes. If you were coming to someone and you had to come clean about some crazy junk you were doing that you knew was messed up and uh, like you're getting confronted, how would you, how would you want to be confronted into that? And I think, yeah, just that like initial empathy is really big. I think with that from being back in the parent role, um, anything that parents can do to create that sense of belonging for the kid is really important. And that doesn't always mean um, explicit empathy and compassion. Sometimes that sense of belonging can come from boundaries and rules and creating guides for that young person to be safe. Um, And a lot of times those kind of boundaries that kids are pushing against, they need those. They internally want those, even though even though they may complain and push back against them, uh, having boundaries, having structure actually creates safety. Uh, and they know that like, dang, someone cares about me enough to create these boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I think that, that um, so one thing that I have actually learned recently and in diving into some like betrayal bonds and trauma bonding stuff is that one of the things that reinforces tra- uh, trauma bonds and makes it hard for um, people to come out of exploitive situations is the extreme response by family or the community. And they oftentimes want to um, avoid that. And so we actually encounter that a lot this last semester with different disclosures mm-hmm. that kids gave. They're just like, nope, I'm not talking to anyone because they're going to want to get the police involved and I do not want to go through that. Um, And so that can be a hindrance to a young person coming forward. And so I think as an adult kind of understanding 
um, and anticipating like the courage that it really takes for to come clean about something that is very vulnerable and it takes so much courage to be vulnerable, um, especially when you've made the mistake or you feel yeah. like you're going to get in trouble. And so being able to be like, hey, like you can take a breather. You can take a step back from that conversation. If you're like, yeah. I'm going to go into freak mode, you can tell your kid that be like, hey, like I am so proud of you for coming to me. I am grateful that you came to me with this. It takes a lot of bravery to come clean about this. Um, I'm having a hard time right now in this moment responding the way that I want to respond. I want you to know that I love you no matter what. Um, And we're going to get through this together. But I just, I need a little bit of a breather. Can you give me five minutes? Um, And I think that's totally fine um, to do as a parent. And you're teaching your kid how to regulate their emotions in that moment as well. Um, Demonstrating those skill sets that, that are really, really good in that. And I think some Sometimes there's some situations where a little bit of a freak out might be okay, might be appropriate. It might be that tough love that that kid needs, you know, Um, but all of that is very situational. Um, But no, the kid knowing that you love them no matter what is what is most important. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no boundaries, um, Mm -hmm. that there have to be consequences when inappropriate behavior has happened. Um, But doing that in the context of love is um, the most important thing. And I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations at such a young age and doing it in a non-shameful way, in a non-judgmental way. Um, because then the kid is going to have more security and confidence coming to their parent being like, okay, so scared mom's going to judge me. She says that I can, you know, come to her about anything. And so I'm just going to do it and see what happens, you know? Um, I think that'd be off the top of our heads. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm just thinking of the last slide from Brittany Brown from bringing the wilderness. Those like secure attachment pieces. Oh yeah. That's a Uh, Brittany Brown. She's always really great. I love Brittany Brown stuff. She's yes. But the the idea, and, and I think I've had conversations with others on this too, that what are you doing during the little stuff? If they spill their milk and you blow up, mm-hmm. they're not going to come to you for the stuff that uh, mom, so I was talking to someone online and they X, Y, Z, because every example you've done in the past has not shown that you will take a deep breath and have a conversation. And again, I am, I am a freak out person. I spike quickly and then I come back down. But what are you doing after that? I'm sorry I did that. That wasn't appropriate, but thank you for coming to me and talking to me and, and whatever. And so what are your interactions day to day that show your kids you really do love them and that you really are going to be have an appropriate response, even if it is what in the hell are you talking about? Like that might be the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a um a therapist named Adam Young that I'm looking up. He has a podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's episode 84 is on parenting and that exact um idea of like creating secure attachment uh through relational rupture. And uh it's the rupture isn't so much the important part as much as what happens afterwards. Is there a connection uh, and safety created again? And uh, he goes very in depth on like the uh, clinical, like attachment side of that. Yep. Awesome. We'll make sure to find that and link it in the show notes as well. And and also just going off of that, I want to touch on the importance of we often talk about, and I know you guys will agree is just listening really giving your kid that undivided attention and the unconditional love. And whether you have your phone in your hand and you're just sitting there swiping up and down on social media, 
and they ask to talk or they are calling you, even though we know when we call them, they don't always listen. Just giving that initial moment of if they're coming to you and you can tell that they're wanting to talk and asking you to talk, just giving them that undivided attention so they know that you truly do care and are listening, that will honestly strengthen your relationship and let them know like that you're here for them and that they can come to you and you're a soft place to land. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or I was just going to say, and they may not come up saying they explicitly want to talk. They may yes. come up and be annoying you yes. <laughs> or doing yes. something like frustrating mm -hmm. uh, in order to get that connection. There's an acronym um, that we use. Uh, it's just the word R, A-R-E. Uh, and it's the process that a kid goes through of like trying to get that uh, secure attachment. The first A is available. Are you available? Are you even around for me to like make noise for you to see me? The second one, R, are you responsive? Uh, if I make noise and try to get attention, are you even going to turn around and respond to me? And the third one is uh, engaged, which is what you were describing mm -hmm. of that like, hey, okay, now that you're responding to me, are you actually turning and attuning and tuning into me? Or are you just kind of pacifying and like doing your thing and just kind of going through the motions? And you can tell when someone's like not actually connected in a conversation. Right. Um, kids can tell that from very early on. Yep. I love that. Um, if I was to go to, say, like my kid's school and ask them what they're doing about the online safety at school mm -hmm. and if there's a program in place and if there's not, maybe refer you guys to come to the campus. What are some of those conversation pieces if we were to go to our kids' schools or a parent listening or someone listening wanting to, even teachers listening, wanting to get something like this in this program brought to the school? Yeah, so on our website, reletrebellion.org slash register, our, our program portfolio is on there. And so being able to download that um, yourself and look through it and really get familiar with who we are in our programs is probably going to be uh, the first start to it. And then reaching out, whether it's a principal or a teacher, whoever you have a connection with on campus and seeing if they'd be open. Um, we pitch ourselves really as like the 21st century stranger danger. Um, and right. so it is, it's like, yeah, it's like, hey, like this is age appropriate um, to the students. We're talking about like intense stuff, but we scale it down to their level um, and really bringing some of like the facts of sex trafficking in, into it. Just being like, hey, like we know this is an issue. And Really, what we've found is that schools are very open in talking about the subject um, because, like so many of us, sex trafficking, especially over the last few years, has become like a really hot topic that a lot of people are talking about. Whether everyone has the right and accurate information or not is another question, um, but it's something that I think that's on people's radar. They just don't know how to access the resources in order to get the information and tools that, that they really want. And so... Um, whether you contact them through email or like an in-person meeting, being able to give them that program portfolio, portfolio, um, letting them know our program is free to the community is a really big, uh, pitch as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, usually if it's like, Hey, I'm a concerned parent coming to the school, I think this is really valuable information for our 7th through 12th grade kids to know. And I have a program that will come in for free into classrooms to talk about this in an age-appropriate way. Usually just that gets um, schools really engaged in the topic. What we have learned over the last 
10 plus years of doing this is that schools function in terror of parents. They will and will not make certain decisions based on their fear that a parent is going to make a big deal about something. So if they can avoid a parent making a big deal about something, they will avoid doing something that they might need to do. And so as parents, you guys have so much power in getting these programs into schools because you're saying, hey, we're not going to make a big fuss about this. We actually want this in the school. Yeah, yeah. I think that schools more than anyone see the need for programs like this. Yeah. Um, and if they are hesitant about us coming in, it's usually because they're scared of a parent's response. And so um, being able to, yeah. as a parent, just go in and make that contact is really great. Once you make that contact, um, then it's a matter of getting us connected. Um, and so they can, if they're just like, yeah, we're confident about this, we would love to do this, they can go on that same um, webpage, rebellion.org slash register and register. Um, all of our links um, and information are there for that as well. Or they can email us or you can email and do it like an email introduction of info at redlightrebellion.org that goes to us and then we respond and are able to answer any questions um, from there. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, what do you guys think is the biggest challenge for this generation and holding parents accountable to make that connection with the children, knowing us knowing how bad human trafficking is right now, to make mm -hmm. that connection to save the future generations? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is the biggest challenge this generation is experiencing, even as like yeah. parents? Um, the either, yeah, or well, either or or both the connection to pretty much how to get involved with the parent aspect and mm -hmm. like technology and all that to the chill to the kids to save mm -hmm. that the next generation from human trafficking yeah um i think well what we've seen through the research is the biggest challenge that gen z is facing and younger is mm -hmm. uh loneliness they're a very lonely generation um they did a survey a few decades ago, I want to say it was like in the 80s, of loneliness in the population. And I think it was about 20% said that they were lo lonely in the general population. That has doubled since then. Um, and I think that's even even more so with, with, with Gen Z. And so um, Gen Z just had, they experience a lot of broken relationships. Um, and so then they reach out in ways that um, are counterfeit relationships that aren't going to fulfill them sometimes. Um, and so I think the challenge for parents is really to um, focus on that love and belonging, like Brandon was talking about, and that um, creating secure attachment with their kid. That starts by looking at our own stories. Um, we can't give what we don't have, and we can only hold someone's story to the extent that we can hold our own story. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us. A lot of work, too. Oh, it's so much work. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I think the extent that, um, you know, our ability to hold our own story and therefore give from that space, um, if the limit that you put on that for yourself is going to limit at which you can support your kids in that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's from what I understand from, I'm not a parent, but uh, as parents, like, there's no perfect route in parenting. There's, uh, you know, you show up the best you can. Um, and I think it's easy to get stuck in shame as a parent. Um, and I think even in this part of the conversation, a lot of, I think the hang, I think in general, the hangups that we have as humans, but even more specifically parents and how we provide structure for kids, uh, those hangups, 
I would argue are directly related to the structure that you were given and that you had or did not have. And so being able to have empathy and compassion towards yourself and what your upbringing was and what your journey has been like to get to this point and what you were actually given to succeed or not given and having awareness around that um, takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to engage that process. Um, but it's through that process that we can give something that's wholehearted um, to our kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. I was going to say, I appreciate you saying that because I know for me, it's, I've been in therapy and doing stuff for four years, undoing, and I didn't go through anything significant. Like I literally grew up in a middle class house in Wisconsin. Like I had no trauma as trauma would be thought of. But again, it's, it's that generational, lack of emotion and that attachment like you were talking about that my I don't believe my mom purposely or my dad purposely didn't do something mm-hmm. but they what they did was not okay and has now created this this situation and I found myself doing the same thing to my boys and so then I I stopped it and I turned it and now like I talk to them in a way that I wish my 13 year old self would have been talked to like, again, I just want to know I'm going to be okay yeah. because I'm 13 and everything's weird and everybody's everything. And <laughs> you just wish that that's what you had. And so, but I wouldn't have known to do that unless I unpacked what I had gone through and what I was missing. And so I love that you said that because it doesn't, it starts with us, but it starts with us for us. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And the, the kids that are in front of you today make it absolutely worth it for you to gauge that process. But to what you're saying, even if they weren't there, you would still be worth it enough to engage yep. that process. Yep. Exactly. To kind of take this even from like a conceptual into, I think, a practical and some of those first steps for parents and even engaging some of these topics and social media and technology and pornography and sex trafficking and kind of taking them seriously is I think being willing to accept that this can happen to our kids. in our communities and the people that we care about. I think it's really easy for us to be like, oh, that can't happen here. That can't happen to us. Or it's so rare. You know, it happens a lot, but like, I personally don't know anyone, you know, like, and we kind of justify those things. But I know that when we believe that we are not vulnerable to something, that can actually make us more susceptible to those very things because we're not looking out for it. We're not protecting ourselves and the people around us. And so being like, hey, my kid, they might be a great kid, but, and I think sometimes we put a judgment on the people that get involved in certain things of, oh, they got involved in that because something was wrong with them. Right. And right. That's yeah. yes, it's judgmental, but I think it's also a defense mechanism mm-hmm. so that we don't have to acknowledge our own points of vulnerability because no one likes to feel vulnerable to things. And and especially so, for your kids. You don't want exactly. to feel like you didn't protect your children. Exactly. Um, And to be like, hey, my kid might be a great kid. They might be super mature for their age, all these kinds of things. But to still recognize where our kids are vulnerable is really important. And I think that that's what I I did in high school. I recognized my vulnerability to sex trafficking. And looking back, I was like, I don't really think that someone would have been able to manipulate me because of the amount of relational support I've had in my community. Um, But I had vulnerabilities in high school. My family was a broken family, you know? And so being able to, as a kid, realize that helped me stay even safer. So in the the same way when we can recognize our vulnerabilities in our kids as parents, we can start taking those practical steps and keeping our kids safe. Yeah. 
And I know we have to wrap up soon, but really quick for anyone listening who's dealing with mental health, um, especially with suicide being so high right now, we know the vulnerability and sex trafficking and how that's on a rise. Anyone who is dealing with any aspect in life where they feel that they're alone and really struggling at this time, if you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? Jesus loves you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so cheesy and corny, but it, we talk yeah. about it in the classroom like we all have inherent value. Um, and nothing we can do, nothing anyone can do to us can change how much we matter. We matter no matter what. And our past does not define us. And we truly believe that is because like we are created in God's image and God gives us a, a, a value and a worth that can never be compromised. And that's just like rock solid. Um, whether or not we believe that for ourselves, we believe that's, that's the reality. And I think for us in our own stories, coming face to face with that truth and um, being able to like feel that truth in our core is really what it drives what we do, but it also has helped us in our own journeys of healing. Yeah. And I think um, the only thing I would tag onto that is even starting uh, from a place of like, just saying like, Hey, I'm sorry, things are hard and that they suck. And like, that's a really difficult place to be in, to feel like nothing is worth it. And um Yeah, you're not alone in that. And there is a way out. And like those feelings aren't wrong. Uh, They don't make you wrong. Um, And uh, like that burden uh, can be lifted. It doesn't mean the feelings are going to go away right now. And that's okay. We can get through it together. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Last question, just because I know you guys touch such a huge audience, especially in the high school age range. And we know with mental health, again, being on such a high rise of suicide, if Mm -hmm. there is someone being bullied on campus and they feel like they're alone in dealing with adversity, how do you guys deal with adversity in your day-to-day lives? And based on what you guys are seeing on campus and kids are experiencing, what are some things that may be beneficial and helpful to someone who's struggling with that? Yeah. In terms of adversity, uh, I've had a lot of personal experience with this one coworker I have. Oh my gosh. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Really Um, difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, it's so funny. Um, Never leaves. (laughs) <laughs> he always catches me off guard with his digs and, so, and I'm not as quick as him so I can't come back and like, <laughs> you're like what? wait who are you talking about <laughs> it can't be me yeah, um, I only have one co-worker and that's pretty nice so and you're uh, stuck with her for life so there it is <laughs> um, yeah sorry what was the exact question again? <laughs> how do you handle adversity and how would you, what would you tell to kids who are handling adversity, whether through bullying or other things like that? Yeah, I think um, a similar message of like, hey, you're not alone in this. And like, it takes a lot of courage to speak up and like ask for input about this. Um, and yeah, I think definitely like those pieces. And I think trying to um, figure out what other support that they have, what are, um, other ways that they can like get support um, in that situation. Cause a lot of bullying situations are very different to 
Yeah. So yeah, when we kind of help coach students through that, we're trying to help them identify like, hey, who are safe support people in your life? And how can you be vulnerable with them in a healthy way that takes a lot of courage, um, but is going to help you get through this because we can't get through adversity alone as humans. We aren't designed to do that. And so that's usually like our first course. And if they're just like, I got no one. Um, and depending on also on what the situation is, how severe it is and reportable it is, um, we connect them with like their teacher or their like social worker on campus yeah. as well. Yeah. I think for like how we handle um, adversity when we're faced with it, I kind of like, I like the wrestle. I like to like, I don't know, maybe it's my personality being like an eight, but um, <laughs> I like to, to, to dig deep. And so the way that I do that is I, I dig in spiritually. Um, I ask a lot of really hard questions um, that I think a lot of people sometimes are scared to ask that can sound heretical or like you're losing your faith, but I'm not. I'm just like, I'm in it, you know? Yeah. And I have to reconcile what I know with now what I'm experiencing. Um, and that's a rumble and a wrestle that we all have to go through at different points. And so I, I dive into that. I dive into um, like scripture and church, but I also dive into like friends and community. Um, I'm a pretty high capacity person. And so it can be easy to do things alone. And over the last couple of years, I, or a few years, I've just realized how I'm possible that is and it has stretched me and challenged me to reach out in ways that I do not like to reach out um, but when I do it's so so good and now it's like oh I need at least this level of reaching out and connection with my people in order to like maintain being good let alone when adversity hits you know um and so so yeah and then we both um are um do a lot of like therapy and have like professionals help us as well and so wrestling um in those arenas are are great too yeah yeah and i think even specifically with the bullying part there's an element with bullying that's just a very much like a power and control thing of identity even where bullies like i'm bigger and stronger than you and so that's where i think connecting to an identity of Mm -hmm. and getting young people connected to the identity um of who they are and then people that can support them in that. And that's a piece of it, you know, adversity that we're all facing of like, hey, how do we get through this? How do we stand up to the adversity? How do we lean into it? How do we have courage to continue to be vulnerable to relationships, even though sometimes they're difficult? How do we continue to um, be human and not just a jaded shell is uh, is a journey. And, you know, every day uh, it's engaging that again. And so um, to what Brianna said, it definitely takes like, uh, courage and leaning into difficult spaces, which is a part of being human. So practically, what does that look like for you? Brandon? Oh, I'm curious. yeah. So for me, it's been a lot of, uh, similar to Brianna, like reaching out and getting connection and, um, just realizing how much I can, um, do my own life on my own. Um, and then also for me, it's been, uh, realizing I have limits, uh, which has been difficult and uncomfortable. I don't like it. Um, uh, <laughs> really at all in several ways and um even in like honestly for me when it's been like working out uh when I go on runs and stuff my like objective has been like if I'm like borderline throwing up then I did enough <laughs> uh but I hit my limit really, <laughs> right I just know you're like if this is the last run I ever go on like I have to give it everything I have right now and um realizing uh kind of that there's a bit of a lack of self-control in that because there's runs where I'm like totally spent and it's hard to like stay present and engage with the rest of the day. I'm like, oh man, maybe I should like, uh, there's a level of moderation 
that I feel has been new to realize like, okay, I have limits as a human being, um, whether that's like physically or even uh, relationally in dynamics, uh, um, realize like, okay, I'm feeling myself get like overwhelmed and like really uh, frustrated or just very emotional. And like the way our limbic or fight, flight, or freeze kind of instincts take over and um, recognizing what that feels like in my body has been a new experience over the last few years. And being able to recognize that and make decisions based on that has been uh, like massively successful <laughs> for, I feel, my livability in general. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much. It, I feel like it uh, keeps me from just kind of like bumbling around in life and running <laughs> into the same walls all the time. Well, and I, I love that because that's something that I've been trying to teach my boys too, because they'll just say, well, I'm angry. But angry has so many emotions attached to it because yeah. you can be frustrated. You could be hungry. You can be upset. <laughs> yeah. You could be um, hurt. All of those things filter through as angry. So we're, we're looking at it like, well, I'm, or I'm sad. Okay. But why, why are you sad? And what is the reason? And so I'm trying to do that myself for myself, but then also for my boys to be like, you need to start realizing now at 13 and 11 that you can't just say I'm blanket emotion because that's an easy way to get out of being emotional. What really is going on? Let's have a conversation so that you don't continue to feel angry or you don't continue to feel hurt or whatever, because it can be as little conversation as this to get yourself back into whatever. Don't make it so, don't let it go so long. Yeah. Yeah. That emotional intelligence helps us when we face adversity, for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I know that we're we're over time and and whatever, but I I super super appreciate I appreciate what you're doing to the community and with the community. And again, as teenage almost teenage parents that we we are, we really appreciate you guys going out and talking to these kids because. We can say it till we're blue in the face, but you guys come in and say the exact same thing and then listen <laughs> to you. So we, we, really, yep. we really understand and we love that you are teaching them to be aware for their peers um, and for other people. Because again, that I think is how we get out of, out of this is to just be aware and be human again and to be alert to what's going around us. Because I think that that's how we, how we with love, we've got to figure this all out again. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. We appreciate it. We appreciate everything that you guys are doing and the powerful content and even everything you've taught us, you inspire us every day. So we appreciate that. And even having this conversation today really quick, if we can have you guys share where we can buy merchandise and your guys' social media handle. Yeah. So Instagram is um, Red Light Rebellion. You just type all that in um, and it'll pop up. Same for Facebook. Um, Twitter is Red Light Rebels. Um, TikTok is Red Light Rebellion as well. So, yeah. But Instagram is the place. Red Light Rebellion um, is the place where you're going to find most of our content um, and you'll be able to access all of our information the easiest, even more so than our website. Um, and then for merch and all that good stuff, you can go to redlightrebellion.org. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we'll make sure to link it in our show notes. And again, everyone who asks, when does this stop and how to move forward? If you want to get involved as you learn more, just know that 
the power of one really does change, even though you feel like you're alone or you might be the only one speaking out, just continue to shine the light on it. And for us, we often turn to prayer. God leads us down the journey that we're on. And we really just know that the power of one, if you can impact one person and just even listening, that will honestly start to make a change and get involved in your own community. So again, we will make sure to link all of their powerful content and information in our show notes and survivors. As always, we hear you. We see you. We stand by you, sending you love, light, and blessings.